Welcome to Moments in Transformation, the podcast brought to you by the In Transformation Initiative, ITI, the peace-building project founded in South Africa, taking the lessons learned here and applying them to other mediation, negotiation or peace-building efforts around the world. We'll offer you an insider's view of the negotiation process firsthand, the moments of drama, tension and breakthrough told by the very people who were there. I'm Karen Allen, your host for this podcast series, and I'm delighted to be joined by South African labour lawyer, conflict resolution specialist and ITI facilitator, Tanya Cohen. Tanya, nice to meet you. Thank you. Welcome. Well, today's focus is rather different from the previous podcast because we're not looking at a peace deal or a traditional conflict like the discussions we've had over places such as Colombia, South Sudan, Myanmar. Today, the focus is on South Africa and how the tools used to mediate conflict can be applied to homegrown initiatives aimed at bridging the gap between the South African government and the private sector. What is now known as the Public-Private Growth Initiative, PPGI, was inspired by the State of the Nation speech made by President Cyril Ramaphosa in February 2018, where he implored the words of the late jazz musician Hugh Masekela to turn South Africa around with the words Tuma Mina, which quite literally means send me. Now, it's a hugely popular song in which Masekela envisages a South Africa of new beginnings. And it really did resonate, didn't it, Tanya? It did. It resonated, I think, with so many ordinary citizens. It resonated with business people. It resonated with political players. It was just really a call to action to say, how do you... Um, go forward as a country together um, in a in a different way, and really a break from the past because we had just come out of the Zuma presidency. Yeah. Um, there had been a lot of factionalism and a lot of um, uh, challenges, and languishing economic growth really heightened social tensions. and And this was really something that I think the population in general just caught onto and said, "Send me." And send me, as in get me involved, or or um, send me the solution, or what was the what was the the driver? It, it was send me. I want to be there. I want to actually be part of the solution and to take action in in the direction that the country needs us to go as individuals. Because the song is inspired by a, a new vision of South Africa and and the fact that it's still a work in a work in progress. Because so many people think, come nineteen ninety four. Those incredible scenes of the elections, yeah. job done, and that's far from the far from being the case. Yeah, it was it was really a call for active citizenship, um, get involved yeah. and get your hands dirty and be part of the solution. Now, tell me what what was the state of play in 2018 when the president made that speech uh, that made the interaction between the private sector and the government such a, a problem issue. So I think it's something that has a history and it started during apartheid times where the private sector was tainted by its involvement in supporting the apartheid regime. And that's obviously a sweeping generalisation, mm. but um, it was certainly the case that both domestic firms and multinationals that invested into the country um, were associated with the apartheid regime and had an interest in it. So the suspicion started then. And if you add to that the fact that the labor movement was very much part of the armed struggle yeah. and um, played a role in terms of the transition, and many of the leaders in the labor movement moved into government when the democratic um, state um, started, is that 
you, you still have this very deep divide between the private sector and government where the private sector is, is regarded as elitist, um, largely white, um, very capitalist in nature, and and government a lot of government officials see see the private sector with with some suspicion so uh, that has almost continued even though we 25 years and beyond into our democracy and um it it continually comes up as as a barrier in terms of economic development but of course social development as well because your private sector is not speaking to the government in a way that is cooperative. Your government doesn't see them necessarily as partners. And unless you can get that right, you're not actually going to get the economy mobilised. And as you say, when you're talking to government, you're talking to so many different voices because the, the, the governing part of the ANC is a, a very, very broad church. So, you know, you have the alliance, the tripartite alliance, which includes the Communist Party, you have the trade unions, you have people within that alliance who are very, very pro-business right through to those who you know, are fundamentally opposed to private sector enterprise. And we, we hear about nationalisation, we hear about all these terms, and it's really confusing for outsiders to actually understand what that relationship is. Absolutely. And I think you, you, you take a, a view, for example, expropriation without compensation, mm-hmm. which if you're a business person, I think it's quite easy to say, of course, you shouldn't have expropriation without compensation because you don't have security of your rights. There's no certainty. Um, and, and yet, from a, from a government perspective, there, there's a, a very strong argument in terms of how do you um, make sure that there's a, a level of retribution um, and redistribution and fairness in terms of allocation of land, which was actually put into white hands artificially through a legislative mm-hmm. regime. So how do you transform that in a way that is fair, but um, but but not go back to the ways of the past, which is is really just allocating who can mm-hmm. who can own land? So those transformation um, deliberations are are really really challenging, and I, I I think that what's happened over the last decade or so is that you've seen a, a transformation process that has been interrupted, that's been delayed, um, and corrupted as well, um, unfortunately. And so these tensions are constantly at play, and there's a there's a lot of distrust in the system. And I was going to say, I mean, come 2018, did you find when this project began, when this project began, that in a sense, government and private sector were poles apart and that mistrust was amplified because of the rapacious corruption over the Zuma years? So there were pockets of trust and and I think there always have been. But those circles were becoming smaller and smaller Mm -hmm. because corruption had actually... Um, really tainted that. And you, it, it was a situation of, uh, I think, not only was the private sector and the government distrusting of each other, but within the private sector and within government, um, as well as with other social partners, is that those, those trust circles had really um, contracted. 
And we're not just talking about sort of the traditional sectors like mining and, and banking. It was much more broad brush than that, that sense of mistrust. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I think one couldn't say that it was all related to corruption, but it was related to a whole range of issues. So if you look at some of the more future orientated sectors like digital and contact centers, um, there was a, there's a large degree of distrust in terms of the way in which those sectors were working. So if you had employees that were working part-time, flexibly, um, remotely, and all of that now post-COVID yes. is a very different situation, but there was distrust of that because it's not your traditional full-time employment. It, it wasn't in the mode um, that the, the unions were used to yes. in yes. terms of job security, and um, it, 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 it was just a contentious issue constantly and resulted in a whole lot of legislation to try and protect conditions of employment in those sectors. But actually, it had the impact of actually retarding progress. Yeah. And just to remind listeners, I mean, the fundamental premise here is that the, the economic divisions in South Africa are still so huge that this, there is a sense that the economic work wasn't done at the time of negotiating the new dispensation. Uh, Absolutely. And and I think it's it's commonly said is that there was a political transformation. There wasn't an economic transformation. And when we sit with levels of unemployment, which are at about 40 percent um, for the general population, almost double that for youth, um, it just tells you exactly how deep um, the, 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 the problem is because you have got so many people that are not economically active, divided largely along racial lines. And, um, and that translates obviously into their income, their household livelihoods, um, the way that people can actually access healthcare, food, and, and basic necessities of life. Yeah. Now, I mean, as we said at the start of the podcast, up until now, the podcasts have focused on conflict areas around the world where ITI has intervened. But there are some fundamental principles which underpin the work that ITI does, which include inclusivity, trust and ownership that can be applied to a post-conflict situation. Uh, but they also have traction here in South Africa. So can you tell me, I mean, with, you know, the public-private growth initiative, this, this initiative that is trying to bring the private sector and the government sector closer together or to address areas of friction, um, can you give a sense of how? Can you give a sense of some of the projects that you've been working on to try and build that sense of inclusivity? Absolutely. So, where public-private growth initiative started was really a sector-based approach to say if you could build relationships between government and the private sector in a particular area of focus, then perhaps from a bottom-up perspective, you could actually make some progress. So the sectors that initially started were agriculture and automotive and tourism. Um, and automotive is a good example, actually, because it was a sector that has had quite a good technical relationship with, the, with government, particularly the Department of Trade and Industry. And um, they had negotiated incentives along the way. There was a reciprocity in terms of information sharing. Um, they, they worked together quite well, but there wasn't a sector plan and they weren't necessarily moving in the same direction. Um, so you could see, for example, that um, issues such as, as, as 
market share yeah. and how the sector was going to grow were, were quite differently viewed from a government perspective to um, the sector perspective. Things like how labor intensive, how mechanized your processes would be. And obviously, if your policymaker is heading in a different direction to the sector, it's not a very healthy yeah. situation. So the sector started speaking much more closely to government. And I would say more at a sort of principle and strategic level, not so much a technical level. And that gave rise to something called the Automotive Sector Master Plan, which, in, interestingly enough, led to a whole lot of other sector master plans being initiated as well. So the auto sector was really a, a lead sector in, in many respects because they started with their own sector, um, looking at their own inhibitors. And going back to the issue of transformation is what's interesting is that one of the key issues that they identified as inhibiting sector growth was transformation um, and the need to actually transform the supply chain because the depth of the supply chain within South Africa is actually quite limited. So approximately 60% of the inputs to vehicles are, are being imported, yeah. which is not very sustainable as a model, but it also it means that it, there's delays. One doesn't necessarily have the ability to adapt and innovate quickly. And what it also means is that we're not receiving the benefit of that supply chain growth within the South African economy. So the project that they initiated was the Auto Industry Transformation Fund, which has been contributed to by the large automotive manufacturing companies and it's now a fund for development of black um, business people entrepreneurs in the auto supply chain both in terms of manufacturing but also in terms of sales and um, it's already starting um, to to pay dividends and that's going to be followed very soon by a, a much more concrete localization process in terms of components so it's it's an example of how the sector themselves identified the problem, yes. but with government are actually unblocking it. And the capacity and know-how is there to be able to do those things in practical terms. Absolutely. But I think what, what was missing um, and where PPGI plays a role is that you don't necessarily have those relationships of mm. trust that can actually bring the government party and the, the business party together so that they can actually move in a, in a common direction. You're listening to the Moments in Transformation podcast with me, Karen Allen, and my guest, the South African facilitator and ITI conflict resolution specialist, Tanya Cohen. Today, our focus is on building bridges between the government and the private sector in modern day South Africa. Tanya, you gave us a really good example of inclusivity there, one of the key um, pillars, if you like, of the work that ITI does. One of the other principles that are ordinarily applied to post-conflict situations where ITI does most of its work is um, the issue of trust and trying to build trust um, between different stakeholders. How did you go about trying to establish trust between government and the private sector actors that you've talked about? So what we do, and it's, it's, it's no magic formula, it's actually quite practical and pragmatic, is that we, we do so through action and working on a common outcome together. So a good example, and actually it arose quite recently under the COVID pandemic, is the conditions under which sectors were allowed to operate 
during the higher levels of lockdown. Um, one of the sectors was the business process outsourcing sector or the contact call centers. And because of historical reasons, there is a suspicion around that sector because for for some reason they they regarded as quite close to labor brokers, and labor brokers are not well regarded um, by the labor by the labor movement. These are the people who basically provide labor to organizations. They're the they're the middlemen in middle. Yes, yes, and and that's not the contact center industry at all because the contact center actually runs services with their own people um, from from a, a set up um, facility. Um, so what happened during the lockdown is that a number of sectors were obviously declared essential sectors, and the call center industry was an essential se- sector yeah. support service in many respects. So to the fire department, the health department, um, a variety of whether it's electricity or water, they were providing essential services. But because of the challenges that um, face the sector and the lack of trust is that they weren't initially included on the list of essential sectors. And through some of the relationships that have been established, very quickly they were added to that list. But then what happened is that the police in some areas actually didn't accept that they were permitted to operate. And that was partially an understanding issue because they didn't actually understand what the operations were. Mm -hmm. But in some instances, there was quite a lot of resistance to these call centers being able to function. And really what the role that we played in that regard was was to bring together key people from both sides and to, to start working together obviously sharing information of mutual challenges. And one of the key instruments that worked in that instance, which is quite strange, is the development of directions on how the the call centers would operate. And I think that's where the industry association played a phenomenal role because they started reporting on a weekly basis against those directions. And that provision of information um, actually opened up the trust relationship so that working together, providing information, being transparent. And interestingly, what's happened since then is that the sector's strategic importance to the economy, but also the, the potential of the sector in terms of growth and development has also opened up. So very um, recently, what's happened is that a master plan process has been initiated for that sector as well. So it just it really does demonstrate how you start working together um, on a on a common objective, and people find issues where they can solve problems, and you can make progress, and that trust relationship actually starts to spread. And a lot of it's about communication. I mean, and and miscommunication yes. or preconceived ideas, as you say. Yes. I, I think what we do a lot of is that we talk to each other in silos. Yes. So within government, um, people are speaking to themselves and within the private sector, they're speaking to themselves. And if you don't start speaking to each other, you're never going to break down some of those misconceptions. And is it literally, you know, getting people together in a room and and getting them to talk to each other and convening events that uh, allow that to happen? But in practical terms, how do you... How do you build that trust? I mean, you said having a common goal, having a common project, but, you know, people are people. And, you know, if there is a mistrust that the call centres are basically um, sort of agents for for controlling the price of labour and in, in, and they are, they are brokers, they're labour brokers, you know, how do you get around that? So I think normally what we do is that we start with sort of key individuals on each side where 
there is a relationship mm. already, and then you 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 start galvanizing a process around that. Actually, getting people into a room is what we used to do. Um, we yes. we don't, course, yeah. but but we've managed yeah, quite effectively. <laughs> yeah, we've managed quite effectively on Zoom platforms to yeah. do that as well. So so also during COVID, we 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 worked on a um, project that put together a platform of initiatives in one of our provinces, um, Gauteng, mm. where we've we've managed virtually on all of them um, to set up little work groups and work streams and drive these projects. And even they managed to build relationships over Zoom calls. Yes. <laughs> so, so, so it does happen. But I think you start with a core of people that, can, that I think know the industries well or know their areas well, but also have worked in a way where there's public-private partnership in the past. Yeah. Because that's really important. And there's a lot of listening involved mm -hmm. as well in terms of really understanding what are the concerns from the other side and trying to unpack those issues. And, and the other thing I think which is really helpful for us is that there's always a common objective or purpose that's almost higher than this particular process that you're dealing with mm -hmm. that one has in mind. So the sector-based work that we deal with, it's really wanting to see a successful growing sector, but that's not only for the business people in that sector, it's for the people that work in that sector and it's for the community that are around that sector as well. And obviously from a government perspective, because there would be increased tax revenues and all sorts of benefits. Yeah. So you coalesce around those, those areas where you can all buy into. And then somehow the the debates on exactly what the mechanism is and how you go about it become much more palatable to deal with. It's interesting. It reminds us of something that um, Ralph Mayer, one of our other, other contributors, was talking about, sort of concentrate on the areas of common ground, not on the areas of, of difference, and just That's sort of right. highlighting that. Yeah. You mentioned community, and that reminds me of, of you know one of the other pillars, which, of course, is the pillar of ownership when we make comparisons to some of the ITI expertise that we've seen deployed in other parts of the world, um, it reminds me of the peace committees that um, Ralph was talking about with respect to uh, Myanmar in particular, borrowing really from some of the experience in, in South Africa. That kind of bottom-up approach and giving ownership to um, public-private partnerships or possibilities, I should say, you know, how did you develop that? So one of the, the Gauteng province projects that we're dealing with is rapid deployment of broadband access into underserviced areas. And that we are focusing on because um, what's happened is that our broadband infrastructure has actually just been commercially viable into more wealthy areas. But where you've got poorer people, it's not necessarily the case. And obviously, the digital divide is a major inhibitor of people's ability to earn and to learn. So we what what we did with that project is that we we have mapped exactly what the process is in terms of deployment, where the barriers and the inhibitors are. One of the big inhibitors that arose was that there's um, something called the thirty percent gangs um, or the construction mafia. These are like terminology that we use locally to refer to them. But the, what happens is that when you have an infrastructure company going into the townships to lay trenches and deploy fiber, is that the community wants to be involved and um, some of these gangs come and insist that they are the subcontractors or that their people are involved. 
and um <laughs> and, and and what we've realized obviously through that process is that there's quite a deficit in terms of how the community is engaged and prepared for this process because they are expecting an outcome from it that isn't only that they will have access to broadband. They want jobs, they want to be part of the, and rightly so, they want to be part of the development of that project because otherwise all the, the money that comes out of that project goes back to some private sector participant who, who's not going to set foot in the township. So uh, we've identified that a community engagement process is really important there. And that. And, and what does that mean? I mean, that, does that mean having almost like a town hall meeting and getting the gangs to come and sit with? Absolutely, but it also means an ongoing process. Yeah. So it's not just a once-off. It's around actually sharing information, keeping people on board. It also means um, that one has to be have a really credible, transparent mm -hmm. process of contracting and subcontracting. So one of the projects we're dealing with is actually trialing how a digital platform can support that. Um, and it's really making sure that you've got the leadership within the community also participating um, in these processes. Because if you don't have an inclusive process in that regard, then your, your chances of landing these projects successfully is very limited. A lot of it is very common sense it based, is. <laughs> but it's 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 sometimes hard, you know, unless you have practical examples to be able to see it working on the ground. I mean, I appreciate it's an ongoing process. Um, PGIC is an ongoing initiative, but how do you measure your success? So that is very difficult because it's it's hard to measure trust, <laughs> and and what we've tried to do is develop indicators of that between the public and the private sector. So, and we've listened to what a lot of the sector participants and the government participants tell us when processes are working well. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, the subtext with, is always around trust. So you, you will speak to a sector person and you'll say, how is your sector development or your master plan process going? And they'll say, oh, it's fine with the department, but a whole lot of the other departments that are meant to be supporting this are just nowhere to be seen. And so there's a point in there that we measure around alignment across government departments um, in favour of the sector interests. There's um, the point made by government often is that, yes, we engage in the sector, but actually they're not organised and, um, and they're sending us mixed messages and we don't know what they're doing. So we've got a, an indicator in terms of the level of coordination by the sector body or bodies. And we add a lot of those sort of factors together. And we take a view of the sector and and how it, it figures in that regard. And that gives us a sort of overall trust indicator. And the thing that's absolutely astounding about it is the level of um, alignment between that indicator and how well the sector's doing. Because where the sector's doing well, for example, the auto sector, which I referred to earlier, is that the, their trust relationship is, is solid and actually the, the growth is happening in that sector. Mm -hmm. Other sectors where those relationships are more fractured, where there are problems, where there isn't this alignment across government, um, where you have a, a division between maybe leadership and the technical um, participants in the process, we, we see that it's a very different situation. Um, construction's an example in that regard mm -hmm. because it sits across a whole lot of different government departments and the, the sector actually says to us, please, you know, can you try and find us a home in government? <laughs> because yeah. they, they sit with the water, they sit with, um, the, the, the trade and industry department, some of the areas sit with Department of Public Works. So 
it's really hard for the sector to engage in a, in a coherent way. So, so we do have some ways of measuring impact. Um, I think sometimes it's just those feel-good things when you actually crack a really hard problem that you haven't been able to. Yes. Um, so we managed last year to really unblock a significant blockage on water use licenses, which touch on so many different industries. Yeah. And you, you sort of feel happy for a while <laughs> that you've actually done it and then you're on to the next one. But, it, but um, impact, I suppose, at the, at the end of the day has to be measured in the degree of, of sector growth that um, over time. And, and, and that's what we look at in terms of whether or not we, we're making a difference. Long work in progress. Thank you very much indeed, Tanya Cohen. Thank you very much for speaking to us. You've been listening to Moments in Transformation, the podcast that takes a behind-the-scenes look at the world of international peacemaking as well as domestic conflict resolution, brought to you by the In Transformation Initiative ITI. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, then why not drop us a line to ivor, that's I-V-O-R, at intransformation.org.za. Thank you, and we look forward to you joining us for the next episode. Bye for now.